Today we'll continue our normal pattern of taking a look at the three scripture readings assigned for next coming Sunday. So we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14, and Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. Prior to that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we look forward to the threefold coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, in this Advent season. We pray that you prepare our hearts to receive him as we eagerly anticipate and look forward to that day when he will come again in glory. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us as we continue the study of your word this day. Through it, may we grow in our knowledge, our understanding of you, and especially of your will for us as your children here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I begin today by wishing you a blessed Advent. Hard to believe that the season of Advent begins. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And, of course, if you want to think about it in this way, three weeks from today is Christmas Eve also. It's a, uh, it's a rather unusual year where uh, the fourth Sunday in Advent is also actually Christmas Eve, which puts a lot of churches in some very interesting situations to try and figure out what in the world do we do with our services on Sunday morning in particular. Just a, a, maybe a word about Advent, uh, just a real introductory uh, way here this morning. Advent, of course, the word means coming or come, and it's during Advent that we, as I indicated in the prayer, uh, focus on a threefold coming of Christ. His first coming, of course, we prepare our hearts to uh, receive once again, uh, receive anew God's gift uh, coming to us, born in Bethlehem, our Savior. We also uh, think of and focus on the way that he comes to us even today in word and sacrament. And then you'll also see an emphasis in Advent looking forward to his second coming in all power and glory, not in humility as he came the first time. And so you'll be hearing uh, the readings throughout the season of Advent really focusing on those three, that threefold coming of Christ. And today we're going to look, first of all, uh, we'll start, those of you here in the gym, there is, a, again, a sheet over on the side, as is usual, and uh, Bibles over there as well. But we always like to start with a collect and see if we can figure out what is the main theme. And the collect, again, a prayer that does exactly that for us, kind of collects the main thought or thoughts of the day. And you'll see there on top of the sheet, the collect for next Sunday is... Stir up our hearts, O Lord, and make ready, namely in our hearts, we might understand it, make ready in our hearts the way of your only begotten Son, that by his coming we may be enabled to serve you with pure minds. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. And so... We're going to see in both the Old Testament lesson, Isaiah chapter 40, and in the gospel lesson from Mark chapter 1, featuring the, the preaching and baptizing of John the Baptist, this whole notion of prepare, preparing our hearts for the coming of the Savior, or coming of the Messiah. And we'll see how this all works out and works through. So 
Um, and Advent itself, uh, that's a very appropriate theme for Advent, that we prepare our hearts. With a lot of distractions around us, as we, as we know, we, we prepare our hearts and to, again, receive God's wonderful gift of his Son to us, and especially also looking forward to that second coming. So let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 40. That's the first lesson uh, that we have, the Old Testament lesson for next week. And just a couple words about this. Uh, God's people, Isaiah is writing, you could normally say around 700 or so, it, it, give or take uh, a couple decades on either side, 700 or so B.C., and God's people in the north have already been taken into exile, and they've been judged by God. God raises up the Assyrians, comes and takes the northern uh, kingdom over, and now we're looking down the tracks, and Isaiah is going to be prophesying about what's going to happen from the Babylonians. God is going to raise up the Babylonians and bring judgment upon the southern kingdom. Now, our, our text is Isaiah chapter 40, but in the, at the very end of Isaiah 39, Isaiah goes right into the court of King Hezekiah and tells him point blank what's going to happen to his people. Um, those of you that have a Bible, uh, you can t- take a look at Isaiah 39. If not, just listen and, uh, and see what Isaiah says here, starting at verse 5 of Isaiah 39. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Yeah, some of you are chuckling. Uh, let's first of all take the, uh, the, the pronouncement by Isaiah. You can't, you can't predict it any more clearly than that, can you? He tells, he tells Hezekiah exactly what's going to happen. And look at what Hezekiah, look at Hezekiah's reaction. This, can, this, this really shows you what dedicated uh, leaders they were. He says, good, because what? There will be peace in my day. In other words, that's going to happen down the line. That won't be my problem. That's, that's literally what he's saying there. And Zedekiah will be the king whose problem finally it will be. And, uh, and he will be the one who will be carted off, uh, eyes plucked out and carted off to Babylon. But, you know, think of that. Hezekiah, oh, that's good. I don't have to deal with it. We'll, pass the, we'll kick the can down the road, so to speak. That's, that's the term we usually use. So God has ended chapter 39 with this very blunt prediction about what is going to happen. It will finally happen in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed, uh, complete and utter destruction, and many of the brightest and best carried off to Babylon. Okay? Now, coming right on the heels of that, and this happens so often in Isaiah, now we're going to get a beautiful chapter of comfort and assurance that God is going to come. And the whole chapter, you know, 
it reassures God's people uh, that there is going to be another exodus, but it's going to be this time not from Egypt, but from Babylon, that they're going to be coming back. Um, just a couple of notes. Um, you know, the more you read, or at least I'll say this is true for me, uh, the more you read the book of Isaiah, uh, the more you appreciate uh, what a masterful job God did through the prophet Isaiah in this book. Uh, it is sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel because it contains so much prediction about Christ and about the coming Messiah. It is 66 chapters long. And how many books do we have in the Bible? 66. And this chapter 40 that we're starting right now starts an entire section that goes through chapter 55. And there's a masterful way this is written. In, in the verses that start, and this is only 11 verses we're looking at here, but the first two verses are sort of a summary of the entire section from chapter 40 to 55. Then verses 3 through 8 are a summary, first of all, of chapters 41 through 48. In other words, it's almost like a table of contents, a short synopsis of what's going to be said later on in chapters, in chapters 41 through 48. And in the last, last verses, verses 9 through 11, are a synopsis about what's going to happen in chapters 49 through 55. So it's almost like here's the preview in chapter 40. And then as you go through chapters 40 through 55, he, put, he lays it out in much greater detail. It is just astounding when you look at the structure of it and the way God, God did all of this. Let's take a look then, starting at uh, verse 1. And remember, verses 1 and 2 are a summary of what God wants to say in the next chapters, 40 through 55. I'll just read the first two verses. Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So notice uh, we start off in verse 1 and there's a there's an emphasis there, and, and this is Hebrew poetry does this quite a bit, where you'll have a repetition. So it's the word comfort, comfort. In other words, uh, we're here and we think this is even in, in the sort of the, the divine counsel of God saying these two commands, comfort, comfort my people. He's just in chapter 39 uh, not comforted them with what's going to happen. Now comes the comfort, comfort my people says, your God. Now, sometimes we slide over that phrase, your God. Does that sound good or bad to us? Your God. When things are wrong, and, and he says they're my people, uh, good or bad, that God says my people. Good. Whenever there's trouble in the Old Testament, God usually says this people, Right? So this is good that God is back to saying, my people, and that they are his God again, okay? So you know right away, things are back on a good track again. God is back with his people and together with them. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And uh, this 
even has some romantic overtones here in the original language. It's almost as if God is courting his people here. Speak tenderly to them and cry to her, and there's God's people, uh, and Jerusalem would be the people of God in exile. Tell them that, notice the, the good things that he is bringing the comfort now with now. Warfare is ended, iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Good news or bad news? Good news. Absolutely good news. Now, there's two ways to take that she has received, God's people have received double for their sins. There's a, there's a bad way and a good way to take that, isn't there? The bad way would be thinking they've been punished, you know, by their exile and by everything that has happened. They've been, that God's going to count that as sort of a double punishment for their sins. So in other words, the, the implication is there's no more punishment's going to come because they've already see, received double for all their sins. The good way to take it, though, and it, frankly, this is the way I prefer to take it because of the whole sort of trajectory of the verse, is that they have received double blessing. In other words, if their sins are over here and they weigh 10 pounds, their, their blessings are going to be 20, okay? And notice there's kind of an interesting play here. How many times is the word comfort used at the beginning of the passage? Twice. And at the end, double, right? And you could say maybe it's double comfort that they're going to receive. Sort of bookends on this whole thing, okay? Now, before we get too far into this, how does that, does this apply at all? Is there, is there a even greater fulfillment of this beyond just the people of Israel back at that time, that they're gonna, their warfare is going to be ended, uh, they, they receive double for their sins, you know, in other words, they're going to come back out of captivity. What, is there a way that this applies to us? Yeah. We are comforted, right? We, we say this is going to happen uh, in, in sort of two ways. First of all, God's going to fulfill it right then and there uh, for his people. They're going to come back. But then there's another fulfillment of this when the uh, Messiah comes and brings comfort and lets us know that our warfare is ended, right? That we have received double blessings for our sins. He does that the first time when he comes and takes all our sins upon himself. But just think again about the second coming of Christ and how beautifully all of this fits. So in both, there's going to be sort of a, you might say, a national fulfillment of this for God's people but there's going to be an even larger sort of cosmic fulfillment of this if finally fulfilled in Christ himself, okay? Now, um, let's go to verse 3. A voice cries, and, and sort of, we're talking about before many. Now, there's one voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You get the sense here, who's going to be coming? God's going to be coming, right? If you're out in the wilderness, make a highway there. In other words, a great dignitary is going to be coming. This would have been in Bible times, but he's using figurative language here to say, 
make a highway, make, make a, a way clear, because the idea here is God's going to be coming. Okay? And um, going on, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So, you get the idea, and the topography in in, uh, Israel certainly supports this, that you've got valleys, you've got hills, uh, you've got um, mountains even, although they're rather modest. But what is supposed to happen to all of this? Become level. And everybody, you you get this in the St. Louis area, you know, you go from one, as soon as you hit, especially Jefferson County, you get all these hills, right? And you can't see nearly as far. The point here is we're going to flatten things out, first of all, in a way of preparation for the coming of the Messiah. But then the other thing is, see where it says at the end there, all flesh will see the glory of the Lord. In other words, it's, it's almost a flattening out so that everyone sees the Lord's glory when he comes. Certainly that's going to happen on the last day, isn't it? That all nations will be gathered before him, all peoples, as we had just in last week's gospel lesson. So there's, there's, uh, you, you get the hints here of even a greater, again, a greater fulfillment of this in Christ, not just at that time with God's people at that time. Okay, And uh, notice there the glory of the Lord in verse 5, his presence with us. Um, God's glory was certainly revealed on the cross when his son goes and dies there. But you get the sense here again of that second coming when all flesh shall see it together. And notice there the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And in other words, it's going to happen. You know, don't, don't wonder if this is going to happen or not. It has been spoken. Then uh, verse 6, a voice, notice there's one voice here. We think this might be Isaiah. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. You kind of get the sense here that God is teaching the, you might say, how temporary life is for people in general. We're just like grass, and the flower, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord goes over it, that breath, almost like in judgment, goes over them. In other words, we can't stand up to it. And our life here is so temporary. But in contrast to that, God says what endures forever. His his word endures forever, right? And I don't know if you've thought about this before, but just think if we had a God who said one thing one time and another thing another. There are certainly people that do that, right? We encounter people that do that. You see them one week and they say one thing. You see them the next week and it's like they forgot what they said the other week uh, and something different now. But with God, we never have to wonder 
Well, is what he said in Isaiah's day still what he thinks today? Maybe he's changed his mind. No. That word endures forever. And we, we could look at Isaiah 55 where it also talks about that that word will not return to him void. It will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. So not only does it endure forever, but it does what it's supposed to do, right? It has its effect. And so that's why, again, we can uh, place our complete trust and confidence in the Word of God because it does not change. We do not have a whimsical God who goes back and forth saying one thing and then another. And that's obviously very good uh, for us. You know how fortunate that is for us, okay? Uh, Now, going on, verse 9, now the people, God's people, are going to be the heralds of this good news. We're going to be the ones proclaiming this. Uh, Verse 9, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, or of the gospel, we might say. Uh, Lift up your voice with strength, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, notice there, your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So notice now God's people, and we would say that's us today, the new Jerusalem, the the church of God. We have this good news to proclaim, that God comes to save his people. And notice there um, the, the idea in verse 10 of the deliverance. The Lord comes with might. The arm of the Lord is used throughout the scriptures as a symbol of his great strength and might. So the arm of the Lord does this. We don't do it ourselves. And then notice his reward and recompense. It's almost like the spoil of victory, the spoils of victory in a military way he brings with him. And that would be, of course, forgiveness and everlasting life that he brings with him. And then notice a complete shift in verse 11, where we get the tender compassion of a shepherd. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So you get this from this great, powerful, mighty image to a tender shepherd, okay? And we can think of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, of course, who lays down his life for the sheep. But again, as we just had in the gospel lesson last week, uh, when he comes, he's in Matthew 25, he separates the sheep from the goats, right? We just had that last week. And the sheep... You know, hear from the master, uh, come, uh, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so he comes with that, with that spoils of his own battle to give to us and share with us, okay? All right, Uh, so you can see how, number one, it's fulfilled in the Old Testament time when God brings his people back from their captivity in uh, Babylon, I guess I didn't mention how that happened, but uh, God in 539, the Persians overtake the Babylonians and King Cyrus, who is the Persian ruler. One year later in 538, 
issues a decree and says that all of God's people can go back to Jerusalem and, and worship. In fact, he even loads them up with all kinds of uh, uh, building supplies, and uh, it's almost like uh, getting an unlimited Home Depot card uh, when you're going back. And so, you know, God, God did that, you know, primarily fulfilled it there, but then ultimately fulfills it, uh, we could say, on the last day when Christ returns and takes all the captives uh, to freedom, to ultimate and everlasting freedom, okay? All right, so let me stop there. Any questions, comments? That'll be for next Sunday now, Isaiah chapter 40. Yes, Scott. Yes. 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 So the question was, uh, verse 5, and let's go back and look at that. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Yes, absolutely. The question was, can that be applied to the first coming of Christ? And yes, just as you quoted, John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So yes, that's a very good point. And, you know, as we're seeing, there's these different uh, times and ways that God fulfills this prophecy, always ultimately in Christ. Yes. Yes, a voice, uh, verse 3, a voice cries, and we're going to see that that is fulfilled in John the Baptist, in Mark chapter 1. Yeah, that uh, John's going to be out there in the wilderness, actually, and it's going to be, this will be quoted, verse 3 will be quoted as, as a fulfillment for John the Baptist in the gospel lesson. Okay? Any others? All right. I'll tell you what, let's move on to the gospel lesson then, and we'll, we'll come back and hit Second Peter. But I want to, because this is so closely tied, I think it might be best if we go to the gospel lesson. Remember I said usually uh, the Old Testament lesson and the gospel lesson can be, usually are, tied together the tightest. Uh, and then on festival days, the, the epistle lesson usually ties in as well. But So let's take a look at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And the beginning of the gospel, we'd say the preaching of the gospel, or the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, now this is actually a quotation from Mike, uh, Malachi 3 verse 1, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, and here we go with Isaiah 40 verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Okay? So what is Mark doing right here at the very beginning of his gospel? He's letting us know that this is the time now when the Messiah is to come. And he is identifying John the Baptist as the one who is supposed to, the, the prophesied, predicted one who is going to come to prepare the way of the Lord, okay? And he does that, you know, showing that Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, verse 3, are fulfilled in this one out in the wilderness. By the way, 
What's so significant? Why, why would John the Baptist be out in the wilderness? Where were God's people in the Old Testament after uh, God released them from their captivity? Where were they? In the wilderness. And if you've ever, if you've ever been there or seen pictures of the wilderness, not far at all from Jerusalem and not far from the Jordan River, it is wilderness. Uh, it is not, <laughs> you wouldn't want to be living there. I'll just tell you that. And think about this. After God released his people from their captivity in Egypt, they were out in the wilderness for 40 years. And what did God do for them out there in the wilderness? Fed them with manna, gave them water. In other words, he formed them to be his people. And no one who was 25 or over was going to get into the promised land. Why? Because they went to the borders and came back and said what? These people are just too big and too intimidating. We can't do this, right? And so God in the wilderness formed a people for himself, and he provided for them. You almost get the sense that here, through John the Baptist now, God is forming a new people for himself once again. And John is that, you might say, that agent of God who is predicted to come before the Messiah and be out there in the wilderness again, forming God's people, okay? And let's go to verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All right, big verse here. Uh, he appears in the wilderness, and notice what is his baptism called? It's a baptism of, yeah. Uh, we generally tend to draw some distinction between the baptism that John is doing out here in the wilderness and what we today know as Christian baptism, the baptism that Jesus instituted in the Great Commission when he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Trinitarian baptism. Uh, it does not appear that the Spirit is given in this baptism of John. It is rather a baptism which issues in repentance. And this, so it's not a bad thing. We're not saying that this is, you know, somehow we, we shouldn't have been doing that, just the opposite. The people are repenting of their sins as they are being baptized by John. And remember that our Lutheran understanding of baptism includes, or I'm sorry, of repentance, includes two things. Number one, contrition or sorrow for our sin, and that should be there. But very importantly also, repentance includes faith in the forgiveness that is ours by God's grace through Jesus Christ. And so you see people there. Now, uh, John is here and he is proclaiming the time is here. In other words, Isaiah 40 is here. You know, make straight the paths. God is coming now in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happens. And this baptism, uh, whatever exactly it was, was described as a baptism of repentance. But notice also, for the forgiveness of sins. So people were repenting, they're being baptized, and 
they are receiving the forgiveness of sin. Now, let me ask you this. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Christ hadn't come yet. So how were they saved? Believing the promise, the same way that we on the other side are, right? The same thing, faith in the Messiah, faith in what Jesus Christ, in their case, would do, we and what he has already done for us. So there is certainly clear to say, number one, and this is kind of confusing, could those people have believed without the Holy Spirit working at all? No. So certainly the Spirit had to be working, okay? But this is, we think, a different baptism than, as I say, what comes later, the one that Christ is going to initiate, okay? Not that it's a bad thing, and it's resulting in the forgiveness of sin, so that's very good, okay? So verse 5, And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. River Jordan. Now, what, what, what was so significant about the River Jordan in the past for God's people? When they came to the promised land, what did they cross through? The Jordan River. Exactly. And here we see the Jordan once again. This goes all the way back to Joshua, leading the people of God into the land that God promised. And here's John the Baptist in the Jordan again. This has a lot of Old Testament, you know, allusion to it here, both in the wilderness, just like with Moses, and in the Jordan, just like Joshua, leading them again to a new land, uh, figuratively speaking. Okay? And notice there they came, they were baptized by him, confessing their sins. Now, John's a rather strange guy. I don't think he'd be accepted at our seminary today if he showed up like this. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we'd admit him. Uh, now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, it's rather interesting that in the Old Testament, Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1, verse 8, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And if we were to take a look at Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, who does it say is supposed to come before the Messiah comes? Elijah. And in Matthew chapter 27, right after the transfiguration, uh, the disciples say, you know, they're not, they've seen him transfigured, and, and they're coming down off the mountain, and they say, well, why are the scribes teaching that Elijah's supposed to come? And Jesus tells them in Matthew 27, uh, 10 and 11, I believe, that Elijah has already come, and you have not believed him, it, referring to John the Baptist. So John the Baptist here described just like Elijah in terms of his attire, he is out there doing exactly what the one who prepares the way for the Lord is supposed to be doing. And so, again, you kind of you get this. It's hitting on all cylinders here that now is the time. Isaiah 40 is being fulfilled. Okay? Then um, he preached. Oh, yeah, he, he, ate, uh, he ate locusts and wild honey. 
not a whole lot to eat out there in the wilderness. Now, I certainly could have brought, I guess you could have brought food along. Uh, I've read a bunch of stuff on this, quite frankly. I didn't think a lot of what I read. So I'm just going to say it was, uh, it was ceremonially clean. He wasn't violating any Jewish uh, uh, dietary laws, but it, it, was, it was all clean. Okay? Then, verse 7, he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what's in effect, what's John the Baptist saying here about the one who's going to come after him in his relationship to him? Who's greater? Yeah, the one who's coming is much greater than I am. Usually a servant, it would almost be beneath a servant to stoop down and tie the sandal for someone. And he's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that for the one who is coming. So there's this great, you know, I, uh, he is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Um, now, here again, verse 8, I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with or by the Holy Spirit. And certainly Christ is going to usher in, uh, especially after his, his uh, resurrection and ascension, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which takes place at Pentecost, okay? And the Spirit coming in baptism as well, all right? So that will be the gospel lesson. And so again, we're, we're preparing for the birth of Christ, that first coming of Christ. And we're seeing back at this time now that John the Baptist is the one who is to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. He, is, he makes it clear he is not the one who is to come. He is just there to, to make ready that, that path or make ready that road that we saw in Isaiah 40. Okay? All right, let's stop there for a second. Any comments, questions? Jim? Yes. Well, he, he, uh, he is the Elijah who was supposed to come. Yes. And uh, not Elijah in, the, in person. But in other words, it's saying like, uh, you almost want to say one like Elijah is going to come. And he's saying, uh, Jesus is saying he already came. In other words, he is John the Baptist. Yeah. And it, but it's interesting that he's got the same kind of garb that Elijah had. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a hint to us that this might be the guy. <laughs> this might be Elijah, the one who's supposed to come. Okay? Oh, and by the way, you know, uh, when, Jesus, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Who's one of the prophets that some people are the talk on the street as he might be? Elijah, yeah. Or John the Baptist. Huh. Yeah. Okay, was there another? Yes. Yes, okay, the question was, other than his baptism, did Jesus and John the Baptist have any other contact? And yes, they certainly did. Actually, they did even before they were both born, uh, <laughs> when you think about it. Uh, when Mary comes and she's pregnant with Jesus and uh, he, he, uh, Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist and, and John leaps in his womb, uh, in her womb. Uh, I'm trying to think of other times... It certainly seems like they did, but we don't have a lot recorded in that regard. Yeah, yeah. And remember when 
John and John the Baptist is going to end up in prison, and he's going to end up being executed. But remember, he sends, he sends his uh, disciples, some of his followers, to Jesus and asks the question, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? And so, yeah, their relationship is, is rather interesting. Okay, any others? All right, let's go on to something that's a little easier to understand. The, the epistle lesson, 2 Peter chapter 3. And Peter is writing to people who are scoffing at the fact that there's going to be a second coming of Christ. We have any people scoff at that today? Absolutely. I, you, know, you probably think the two things that people, um, you know, scoff or make fun of or criticize the most are either the resurrection of the body, you know, the resurrection from the dead, and, and the second coming of Christ in general. Those two things. And 2 Peter 3 is written to these people exactly. If we were to read uh, just a couple verses uh, earlier, in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter himself says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days and scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? Uh, And... For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter is saying, there's the scoffing right there. People are saying, well, where where is the second coming? Where is it? You know, people have died and nothing seems to change. Everything just keeps going on as it is. So the Christians were being hit with that kind of criticism, Uh, you know, just you know, really making fun of and talking in a condescending way, where is this second coming? So let's look at our epistle lesson, and here's Peter's answer, okay? But do not overlook this one fact, or don't let this one thing escape you, beloved. So he's talking to the Christians there. uh, That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So let's stop there for just a moment. What's the general teaching that, uh, that Peter wants to get across here with regard to God and time? His time's not our time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in other words, God is not limited by the concepts of time or we could add space or any other physical limitation, is he? So Peter's reminding his readers of that In other words, uh, you know, yeah, he hasn't come yet. He hasn't returned yet in the ways that we mark time. But remember, God's not on a time limit here, right? And secondly, there's another uh, good thing that's coming here. Um, Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. In other words, he's not slow about his promise to return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So not only is God outside of time, but why is he delaying, you might say, or why is he not coming immediately? He is patient And here is a key verse against a doctrine, but let's first of all describe what it is. His overall general will is that what? 
none should perish, right? That, that he, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is one verse, and uh, gosh, 1 Timothy 2, 4 repeats this uh, is in several places in Ezekiel. This is one of the main reasons we as Lutherans don't buy into or don't teach a double predestination. In other words, that God not only predestines some to be saved, which we do have, he called or elected some, but usually the Reformed then, uh, like Presbyterians and others, will say that means then that God also chose others, called them to be condemned, to be damned. And we would say no. First of all, we don't have any passage that we're aware of in Scripture that actually says that, but it also flies in the face of passages like this. It is God's his, his universal desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. So when someone receives Jesus Christ and is confessing a faith in Jesus Christ, who gets the credit for that? God does, right? Because the Holy Spirit has brought that faith. As Luther says, I can't by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightening his gifts, and so on. Now, if someone rejects and does not believe, does, uh, rejects God's offer of salvation, who gets the blame for that? They do, right. The person does, not God. God's desire is that everyone be saved, that none should perish. We call that his primary will, his primary will. Okay? And this is, again, one of the passages uh, that would, that would uh, support that. Um, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Day of the Lord, meaning, again, the day when Christ returns. What's the significance of coming like a thief? No warning. Yeah, no warning. Uh, wouldn't be too good a thief if he called you up and said, hey, around uh, 2.30 in the morning, I'm going to be breaking into your, uh, into your basement. So, you know, no. We, uh, it, it's going to come at a time, in fact, Jesus says, when we do not expect it, right? So like a thief in the night, again, just a comparison, just an analogy, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed or found. Uh, nothing will remain hidden, we might say, okay? Uh, verse 11 since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, since we know that all of this is coming, that everything is going to be um, uh, done away with on that day, as is described here at least, and it's going to come unexpectedly, what kind of people ought you to be? And that's kind of a rhetorical question, isn't it? Uh, we know that we should be, as we talked last week in the sermon, just living as God's people, doing what God's people do. Okay? Verse 12, uh, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, of God. Now, a wrong way to interpret that hastening the day of God would be to say that we could do what? We can speed it up. Yeah. 
If I just do this, uh, I'll speed it up. In fact, uh, I had read, I don't know, I couldn't remember where I read this, but that in the day of Jesus, the Pharisees thought that if just every child of God at that time would keep all the Sabbath laws perfectly for just one Sabbath, that God would send the Messiah. In other words, they thought they could hasten the day uh, when the Messiah would come. The irony, of course, was the Messiah was standing right there in front of them so often, and they didn't realize it. Now, there's nothing we can do to speed that day up or to uh, forestall it, but we're looking forward. Another way to uh, translate that is earnestly desiring it or anticipating it, uh, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Um, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Okay? Now, uh, just read through these verses. I just want to say, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there are two kind of two theories about what's going to happen on the last day. Uh, one theory is complete annihilation of everything, of all elements, of all, of complete uh, everything. And uh, God creates a new heaven and a new earth and new people and so on, okay? That's one theory. The other theory is more of a sort of um, what you might call a destruction, but not completely, and a renovation or a re, uh, regeneration, you might say, uh, of people on that day, or, and, of, and of the whole creation. People who tend to look more toward a, an annihilation of everything will use these verses, will point to these verses to kind of support them in that. Uh, it talks about, as, as we look there, at things being burned up and dissolved, uh, for example. And um, uh, verse uh, 12, uh, again, set on fire and dissolved. Heavenly bodies melt as they burn and so on. Uh, I frankly don't get uh, too excited about the difference between this because you've got Romans 8. For those that are in uh, Living Way Bible study, uh, just this last week in Romans 8, uh, we saw uh, God talking there about a creation that longs to be freed set free. It doesn't sound like there's not, no word of destruction there. If you think about it, our bodies <clears throat> might be a good example of this. What happens to our bodies? I don't care if you have a triple, quadruple sealed casket and you are put in a, in a five-layer thick concrete uh, vault. What's going to happen to your body over time? Deteriorate. Yeah, deteriorate, <laughs> say the least, uh, and dissolve, right? On the last day, what is God going to do? We shall be changed, right? As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the corruptible puts on the incorruptible, the mortal puts on the immortal. And so God certainly is going to do, what do you want to call it? Recreating, regenerating, rebirthing, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, I've read several authors that say there might, be a, there might be a clue for us in that when it comes to the world around us as well, that it can certainly be a lot of it, you might say, uh, destroyed, so to speak, in that, uh, again, all sin and impact of sin is purged out of it, and God, in a wonderful way, 
does, again, some recreating, regenerating, rebirthing of this world, again, without sin, the way he originally intended it. So I don't get, I don't get too excited or get too lost. Some people, you can imagine, there are, there are articles and articles and probably books, I'm sure, written on this very thing. You know, which is it going to be? Well, we certainly see... Uh, remember, the first time God, you might say, destroyed things was not with fire, but with water. And every time you see a rainbow, you're reminded of his promise, right? That he will never again destroy uh, the earth in this way. This time it appears, uh, you get a lot of imagery here of fire uh, that's going to be used. And, you know, again, this is, this is the imagery that is used here. But there's one thing certain, and that is God is going to make all things new, including us, including the, the environment, the whole creation that, that we are in. And we wait for that day. Uh, we, we wait for him to return and do exactly that. And in Advent, through Isaiah 40, uh, you know, we are reminded that that day is still out there for us and that the word of God endures forever. It was spoken about 700 years before Christ, and yet it is still as sure and certain as we are today. Uh, God is not slow about it. He is patient, hoping uh, that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance and be saved. That's the only reason. So in Advent, there's a, there's a temptation perhaps to get all, you know, all twisted around all these, you know, well, what is going to be this or is it going to be that? We as a church are given that, first of all, we, we let God prepare us through word and sacrament for that day, and then we are busy proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that others might repent and enjoy that eternity with us as well, okay? All right, let me stop there. We're almost out of time. Any other uh, questions or comments, especially on Second Peter 3? All right, let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.